I want to suggest to you that an appeal to the Bible is an appeal to the authority of God. That if we make an appeal to the Bible, and I mean by that simply, we start making an appeal of saying, you know, the Bible teaches, or we make an appeal that the Bible says we must, any appeal to the Bible is an appeal to the authority of God. I want to also, also suggest to you that authority is totally unavoidable. What I mean by that, there is no way you can avoid authority. There are some who would want to reject authority, but I want to also suggest to you that rejection of authority is not a rejection of all authority. When someone rejects the Bible, and I'm not going to follow the Bible, and I don't believe in Bible authority, and I don't believe in following Bible authority, I don't think we need to have Bible authority, and I don't like having anybody having authority, that is not a rejection of all authority, it's merely a rejection of one authority for a different authority. You see, all of us follow some system of authority. The system of authority may be your own mind, whatever you think, that is your authority. Or it may be what someone else is telling you you must do. Or it may be the family religion that's telling you. Or it may be some church uh, creed that's telling you what you must do. So a rejection of authority, again, is not a rejection of all authority. It's just a rejection of one authority for a different authority is all that is. We all follow some form of authority. It is wrong for us to assume that all, even those, all of those who attend, know about authority of the scriptures and how to apply that. I think we do assume sometimes, everyone who attends all of the services, and they come most of the time, that everybody present knows what authority is, they know what the Bible teaches about authority, and they know how to apply it. That's just not so. There will be questions to arise as time goes on. There will be situations that arise that don't change our view of authority, perhaps, but will reveal that perhaps our understanding of authority wasn't clear all along. Here's what I mean by that. It may be that we're all in harmony and unity and we're moving along practicing the same things. I'm not talking about just here, but any place among brethren. And then suddenly some question arises some situation may arise to come to find out there were some who didn't have an understanding of authority and that's why people go in different directions practicing contradictory things. That's happened time again throughout history. Many of the problems in society is due to, a, to little or no respect for authority. Some things will be very familiar to you. For example, when children misbehave and continue to misbehave and are not corrected, Perhaps that is a question of authority. It may be on the part of the child toward the parent, or it may be on the part of the parent toward instructions of disciplining the children. When students are continually disrespectful to school officials, that's a question of authority. When there's destructive protest, it's a question of authority. When there's anti-police marches, that's a question of authority. When there's hatred toward government officials, that is a question of authority. When there's division within a local church and churches are divided and pulling in separate directions, it comes back to a question of authority. When we lose our children to the world, it comes back to a question of authority. And so again, I say many of the problems that we experience in our society are due to little or no respect for authority. So tonight, let's talk about respecting authority. Let's talk about four things with reference to respecting authority. Let's start with this. God has authority 
over man. We're going to be quite fundamental and simple and remind ourselves of principles we should already know, but perhaps we don't always have these deep-rooted in our hearts. So let's start with this. God has authority over man. Now let's begin with this. God, because he is God, has authority over man. God, because of who he is, he is God, he has authority over man. Now let's talk about who God is, that is the characteristics of God. Let's start with this. First of all, he is eternal. When Moses uh, asked, who shall I say sent me? That is, as God sent him to Pharaoh and said, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses asked, well, who do I say has sent me? He knew God was in, but what am I going to tell him about who sent me? And God told him to say, I am has sent thee. That is an affirmation of the eternal nature of God. He's not the God that began at some point. He is and always has been and always will be. He is the I am. So there is the eternal nature of God. He has no beginning and he has no end. So because he is eternal, he has authority over man. In Revelation chapter 4 and in verse 8, he is described as the almighty God in the throne scene where God is sitting on his throne and he's in control. He is the almighty God, the all-powerful God. Well, furthermore, he is the creator. In Genesis 1 and in verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So all things were created by God. So your very existence is due to God. The very breath you breathe is because God created that. So God, because he is the creator, has authority over man. He that builds all things, Hebrews 3 and in verse 4 says, is God. So all things were built and created by God. Furthermore, he is infinite in wisdom. You remember in Isaiah chapter 55, that passage talks about God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Well, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways and our ways and, uh, his ways and, our ways and his thoughts than our thoughts. So that tells me God is infinite in wisdom. He's smarter than the smartest of mankind. So being infinite in wisdom, being eternal, then therefore he is the one who has authority. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus, the Son of God, who claimed to be deity himself, and he was, and gave evidence of that, the text says all authority has been given unto him both in heaven and on earth. That is, the Father gave that authority to the Son. So if Jesus has all authority, and if God is eternal... And he is the Almighty, he is the creator of the universe, infinite in wisdom, then God, because he is God, has authority over man. Thou must make some conclusion from that. And that is to question God's authority is to question who God is. So when I begin to look at what God has said and I question God's authority, and you say, Well, I don't know of anyone who would ever question God's authority. There have been many who have departed from the faith, and in the process of departing, we begin to see a, a, uh, a beginning of questioning God. Why would God say this? Why would God give this restriction? Who is God to think he can restrict us from doing that? Those are the kinds of phrases you may begin to hear. What they're doing is questioning God's authority. They're actually coming to question who God is. But let's go a step further than that. I want to suggest to you, while we're still talking about God having authority over man, to reject or to rebel against authority is an ultimate rejection of God himself. That's the point we're making. Now what I have before you is on the screen is that God has delegated authority to parents, for example, in the family. God has delegated authority to the husband in the family, Ephesians chapter 5. God has given authority to the employer, 
The person who hires you is the one who has authority over the job that you're doing. God has given authority, Romans 13, to civil authorities. God appointed them to have, to have authority, uh, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 8. And God has given authority to elders. Now, when we reject the authority, for example, of parents, here is the child who is old enough to be a child of God and old enough to be accountable before God when they reject the authority of their parents, and I don't want my parents telling me what to do, that is ultimately a rejection back here of God because God gave them the authority. When a wife rejects the leadership of her husband, said, I'm not going to follow the leadership of my husband, that's a rejection of God himself. The same thing when we reject civil authority and we reject leadership of those who are elders, that is a rejection of God himself. So God, because he is God, has authority over man. Here's the second thing. Let's consider the fact that God's word is authoritative. God's word is authoritative. If God has authority, then whatever God says, in whatever form that might be, then that must be the authority. So if God is verbally speaking to man today, and we were coming together, and God is verbally speaking before us, so that we hear his voice thundered out of heaven, then that's the authority because God has all authority. But God has given his word in the written form and that word then becomes authoritative. So let's go to some simple passages we are familiar with. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Let's understand that the word of God, the book you hold in your hand called the Bible, the book of God is inspired of God. It's God-breathed. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped to every good work. So the reason that we are equipped unto every good work is because this book came from the very breath of God. God breathed the very words. God gave it. It is given by the Spirit of God. Well, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and in verse 13 where the Apostle Paul is describing the process of revelation. How that eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for him, that is, the things that were in the mind of God, no one knew until God chose to reveal them. So he gives that as an illustration in verse 13, for, or verse 11. For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man who is in him? That is, you don't know what I'm thinking in my mind until I reveal through words what's on my mind. So no one knows what's in the mind of God until the Spirit of God has revealed that. So now let's go to verse 13. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now what I'm learning from verse 13 is that God chose the very words that were chosen by the apostles as they wrote the will of God. So we have verbal inspiration affirmed in 1 Corinthians 2 and 13. We have plenary inspiration affirmed in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 16 and 17. But here's something else about the Word of God. The Word is authoritative because a violation of it constitutes sin. Sin is a transgression of the law. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is a transgression of the law. So here we have the revealed will of God written down to violate that or transgress that constitutes sin according to what John said in 1 John 3 and 4. Now I might write something and you violate, that doesn't constitute sin. You may write something and I violate it, that doesn't constitute sin because what we say is not authoritative. But when God writes something to violate it, it becomes sin, that means there is authority behind that message. 
But let's give another evidence that it's authoritative. In Titus chapter 2 and in verse 15, Paul told Titus, these things teach with all authority. Now, there's a lot of things we could teach, but we can't teach it with authority. Again, I might write some instructions and give some commands, and you could go teach those commands, but you can't teach it with all authority because there's no authority behind that. You might write something, and I could go teach what you write, but I can't teach it with all authority. But Paul told Titus, the things that had been revealed, you can and you must teach with all authority. That means it's authoritative. Here's another thing that tells me it's authoritative. We cannot alter nor can we change. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, we cannot add to nor can we take away. If we add to it, then the plagues will be written unto us. If uh, if we take away, then the name will be taken out of the book of life. So you can't alter or change in any shape, form, or fashion. You can't give more to it. You can't take anything away from it. It can't be changed. Now, I might write something, and you could take it and say, I'm going to teach this, but I'm going to have to change it to make it better, and probably so. You might write something, and I'll say, you know what? I need to to rework that and change that to improve upon that. You can't do that with the will of God. There is no changing. That tells me it's authoritative. And furthermore, John chapter 12, verse 48, we're going to be judged by the very book. Jesus said, the words that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. So if the things that have been spoken and written down is the standard of judgment, then it must be authoritative. So I've learned two things so far. I've learned that God... Because he is God has authority over man. And I've learned that the word of God is authoritative. Here's a third thing we need to learn. And that is the need for authority. The need for following authority. Now let's talk about there is such a thing as an order of authority. The Bible talks about an order of authority. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and in verse 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. This chapter, this context for the first 16 verses is dealing with the principle and question of headship, leadership, and how that is manifested and how that is displayed. So here's what he says about that beginning at verse 1 or verse 3. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. You say, I don't understand that. It doesn't matter whether you fully understand that. If you have even a smattering knowledge of the text, it shows there is a system or a pattern of authority. Let's see what it says. It says that here we have woman and that man is the head of woman. Now notice again that he says, the head of woman is man. So here is woman and man has authority and he's the head over the woman. But the text also says that Christ is the head of man. And that the Father, that is God, is the head over Christ. There is an order of authority. And the fact that one submits, for example, as the woman submits to man, doesn't mean she's inferior to man, any more so than the son submitting to the Father's will means he's inferior to the Father. Philippians 2 says he's equal to the Father. So it is not a question of inferiority. It is not a question of uh, equalness, but it is a question of submission, and there is an order of authority. Now, if there is an order of authority, then there is a need to submit to authority. But let's go a step further. Let's consider that man is not his own authority. That's why we need authority. That's now why we need to have respect for authority, because man is not his own authority. In other words, I can't decide for myself. 
In Jeremiah chapter 10 and in verse 23, it is not in man that walketh to direct his own footsteps. In other words, I can't decide, you know what, this is the kind of worship I'm going to offer. Here's the kind of work we're going to do as a church. Uh, here's what I think I'm going to teach people they need to do to be saved. I can't decide that for myself. It's not in man that walketh <clears throat> to direct his own footsteps. Proverbs chapter 3 and in verse 5 says, Lean not on thine own understanding. Trust in the Lord, he says. Put your trust and your confidence in the Lord, but don't lean on your own understanding. You see, if I become my own authority, I'm leaning on my own understanding. I'm deciding, you know what, I think I know what's best of what to do to be saved. I think I know what's best to offer worship unto God. Man is not his own authority. Proverbs 14 and in verse 12 says, There's a way that seems right unto man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. That is, man's thinking may seem right, but it's not, it's not going to work out. That way ends and leads to death. Now let's talk about the principle of following authority. How does it work out when you follow authority, and how does it work out when you don't follow authority? What's the difference in that? Well, let's talk about two men, one who followed authority and one who did not, and let's see how that worked out, and let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, we read about two men. They were brothers, Cain and Abel. And here's what the text says about Cain and Abel. <clears throat> Verses 3 to 5 of Genesis chapter 4, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat. And so let's stop there just for a moment and hear both men attempting to worship God. Both men are attempting to bring an offering before God. One brings, the text says at verse 3, that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. That's his attempt to worship and honor his God. Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock. That's his attempt to serve and honor his God. Now let's read further what the text says. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Now here we have two brothers. We have Cain on the one side who brought an offering, and we have Abel on the other side who also brought an offering to the Lord. Now here's what we see. In this text, one brought of the fruit of the ground, the other of the firstborn of the flock. The text says the Lord respected Abel's offering and he did not respect Cain's offering. What's the difference in the offerings? I've been asked before by people who just do a cursory reading of the book of Genesis and know little about the rest of the Bible. You know, it doesn't seem fair to me that God would accept one, but he rejects the other. Why would God do that? Why did God, did God just arbitrarily say, you know what, I kind of think I like Abel, but I don't like Cain. Did God just arbitrarily decide which one he liked and which one he didn't like? Let's go to the New Testament, see if we can find some example of what's going on. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11 and in verse 4, because that's going to serve as a divine commentary on what happened in Genesis 4. Now what Hebrews 11 and verse 4 says is by faith, Faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Abel offered one by faith. What that means is that Cain's was not by faith. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that, that Abel said, you know what, I think mine's okay. And Cain said, I don't think mine is, though. No evidence of that. They both are bringing their offering before the Lord, seemingly to expect God to accept that. So it's not expectation. 
One was by faith, the other is not by faith. So let's get a clue of how faith comes. Romans 10 and 17 says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What that means is that Abel offered a sacrifice according to the word, according to authority, and Cain did not. We have a case of one who respected authority and one who did not respect authority. One who followed authority and one who did not follow authority. I'm seeing something about the power and the principle of following authority. But let's go further. We must follow Bible authority. Let's open our Bibles to passages we know well. Colossians 3 and in verse 17. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 3 and in verse 17. The text says that whatever you do in word or in deed, that is in teaching or in practice, Teaching word, indeed practice. So whatever we do in our teaching, whatever we do in our practice, that encompasses it all. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now Acts 4 and verse 7 tells me to do something in the name of another is by their authority or their power. So I'm to do all that I do in word or in deed, in teaching and in practice, by the authority of Jesus Christ. Now we learn from Genesis 4 the power of following example, of following authority. We are to follow the authority of Christ. 2 John 9 says we're to abide within the doctrine of Christ. Whosoever transgresseth, one translation says, goes onward and abides not in the doctrine of Christ. In other words, they go outside the realm of the doctrine of Christ. They do not have God. So get the picture now in 2 John 9. If the will of God is the doctrine of Christ... And what I'm doing and what I'm practicing can't be found by the authority of Christ. I'm going outside and beyond the realm, then I do no longer have fellowship with God. But here's another passage I need to know, and that is in Galatians chapter 1, 6 through 9. If we are an angel from heaven preaching to you another, uh, any gospel, uh, preaching to you another gospel, which, uh, uh, which even if an angel from heaven preached to you another gospel, let him be accursed, the text says. Now here's the point. Our doctrine and practice is limited by the word. Even if an angel came down from heaven. Now get the picture. If an angel came down, and I knew this was an angel, and I knew he came from heaven, and he's teaching something different than what I find written in the authoritative word, I'm not to listen to that. I'm not to follow that. So I have to follow authority, the authority of God. Now let's... Notice the fourth point now, and our final point. Let's talk about standards of authority. I know God has authority over man. And I know the Word of God is authoritative, and there is a need for appealing to authority. Let's talk about standards of authority. By standards I'm talking about, there are, first of all, some false standards that are used. Here's some things that people use as their system of authority. Now, they may not stand up and advocate, I want to tell you about a new system of authority, but they make their decisions based upon these principles. Like what? Well, for example, family. Some look at their family, and, and this, is the, this is where the family fits. The family follows this religious thought, and I'm going to follow the religious thought because I can't go against family. Others, if they have family that, for example, are in a divorce situation or marriage situation, contrary to the will of God, they're going to side with family, and that's what is true because that's where the family fits. I want to find a, a position, I want to find a doctrine, I want to find a church that embraces and accepts my family. So family becomes the standard of authority. Let's turn to Luke chapter 14, if you will. Turn to Luke chapter 14. Should family be our standard? By the way, that's a subjective standard. What do you mean by subjective? 
It's a subjective standard because, you see, my family's different from your family. And if family becomes the standard, then we're going to believe practice and practice different things because what my family's religion is may be different from your family's religion. Your family endorsement may be different from my family endorsement. That's a subjective standard. Go to Luke chapter 14 with me, if you will. Look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and his wife and his children his, uh, and his brothers and sisters, yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Matthew 10 says, he that loveth father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, when family becomes the standard and I'm judging everything based on what the family will accept and what the family approves of, what the family religion is, then I'm making family the standard instead of God. Here's another false standard, emotion. Emotion sometimes becomes standard. How does that? Well, we sometimes talk about what seems fair and right. We, we, we look and we start to embrace a doctrine found in the scriptures and we say, well, I can't, I can't accept that. Well, why can't you? Well, that just doesn't seem fair to me. That doesn't seem right to me. I, I, I have a hard time, you see, making sense from human reasoning. Uh, for example, like baptism might be essential. That just doesn't make sense to me. Or that this person doesn't have a right to divorce and remarry. That doesn't make sense to me. You see, that doesn't seem fair to me. And we're using emotion as the standard. And if I feel like it ought to be right, it's going to be right. If I feel like it ought to be rejected, it ought to be rejected. Let's go to Proverbs 16 and in verse 25. We haven't been there yet, though you may think we have, because it says essentially the same thing as the 14th division in verse 12 of the book of Proverbs. It says, there is a way that seems right to man, but the ends are the ways of death. You see, emotion may seem like this is the way to go. I'm so tied up with emotion in this direction, but that becomes my standard. It can obviously be wrong. Here's another false standard, the preacher. How many times have we known of people who begin to search for some answer and they come up with the fact, you know what, I know a preacher that told me, and he, he knows his Bible pretty well, he told me and that becomes their standard. See, he knows more about the Bible than I do. And I found a preacher that says he thinks this is okay to practice. Uh, he says this, this religion is fine. He says this is okay. Then the preacher becomes the standard. Again, I appeal to Galatians chapter 1, 6-9, if we are an angel from heaven preaching any other gospel unto you, then that which we preached unto you, let him be accursed. Even if an angel came down, he is not the standard. Some make a scholar the standard. Meaning, here, here is a person who knows their Bible, and he is a scholar. He knows far more about Hebrew than any of the rest of it. And he said that there were only, uh, there wasn't six days of creation. And he knows more about that than we do. And so consequently, there were millions of years in the days of, of creation. And consequently, that's what I'm going to accept. That makes the scholar the standard rather than the will of God and the standard of the word of God itself. I again cite Galatians chapter 1. Even if an angel came down from heaven and said, here's what the truth is, don't accept them if it's contrary to the will of God. Here's another false standard, and that is the majority. How could this be wrong when the majority of the people believe that? You see, most of the world believes faith only, so therefore faith only must be right. And most of the world believes and you decide whatever you want to cite. And since most of the world accepts that, then that must be the thing. That makes the majority. Exodus 23 warns about following a multitude to do evil. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus warns about the majority that go along the wide way will be lost. Only a few will be indeed saved. But let's close by appealing to the only standard we have. And that is the Word of God. It is an objective standard. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, again, family is subjective. You see, your family differs from mine. 
Emotion is subjective because my emotion is different from yours. Preachers are subjective because, see, the preacher I find is different from the preacher you find. Scholars are subjective because the scholar I cite is different from the scholar you cite. Those are subjective. We, we have no common standard. But you see, the Bible is an objective, unchangeable, fixed standard. Here's what the Bible tells us. We cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God, as Balaam said, to do less or more. That ought to be our attitude. But I'm going to appeal to the will of God. I can't go beyond it. I cannot do less and I cannot do more. I cannot go beyond the will of the Lord my God to do less or more. That's the Bible as being the standard, the will of God, the revealed will of God. We're limited and we're restricted by the word. Peter said in 1 Peter 4 and verse 11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles, the sayings of God. We're limited and we're restricted by the word of God. We cannot go beyond the will of the Lord. And may I suggest to you in James chapter 2, that every part of it is just as authoritative. Let's turn over to James chapter 2, one last passage. In James chapter 2, beginning at verse 10, that whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, all said, said, do not murder. See his point? That is, you can't piecemeal the will of God. You can't take the Bible and piecemeal and say, I, I like this part and I'm going to take it, but I don't like that. I'm going to reject that. It comes as a package deal. The same one that wrote this part wrote the rest of it as well. And the one that wrote about baptism, because that's so important, also wrote about marriage and also wrote about the work of the church and also wrote about worship. And on we go with all other things that are found throughout the Scriptures. One part is just as authoritative as another. More could be said, and perhaps will be later about authority, but we're talking about respecting authority. God has authority over man. The Word of God is authoritative. There is a need for authority. There are false standards and only one true standard of Bible authority. That's the Word of God itself. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come? Well, together we stand and while we sing.